You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I'd like to introduce our special speaker this week. Jennifer Palka is the founder and executive director of Code for America, a San Francisco-based nonprofit that, according to the Washington Post, is the technology world's equivalent of the Peace Corps, offering an alternative to the old, broken path of government IT. In addition, Jennifer has served as the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Jennifer is well known for her TED Talk called Coding a Better Government, where she noted that we will not be able to reinvent government unless we also reinvent citizenship, and asked, are we just going to be a crowd of voices, or are we going to be a crowd of hands? Please join me in welcoming Jennifer. Thank you so much. So thanks for everyone coming today. It's a nice big group, and um, it's an honor to be asked to speak to a, uh, an institution that has such an amazing reputation, I think, for technical excellence and also um, for an entrepreneurial spirit, especially on a topic that isn't always associated with those two things. Um, but I hope today to talk to you a little bit about why it should be and certainly can be. Um, I did want to start with a slightly unconventional question of all of you, and, and, and bear with me here. Does everybody in this room have health insurance? Can you raise your hand if you have health insurance? And if I'm embarrassing you, I apologize. So most people here are fully standard. You get health insurance. Um, so sort of what I expected. Um, I will tell you why I'm asked that question a little bit later in, in, uh, in the talk. Uh, so, so bear with me. Um, I... Um, the sort of story of why I'm asking that starts here, and this is the offices of Code for America. We're on 9th Street in San Francisco. Probably looks to most of you in the audience like a tech startup. <laughs> That's sort of what it is. Uh, it's got that kind of environment. Um, but as Tina just noted last year, I spent, uh, starting in June 2013, I spent a year going to work at this office. Um, looks a little bit different and the culture is a little bit different. This is the executive office building in the White House complex. So that black fence that you see there is, is the border. You actually have to go through the metal detectors that Secret Service run in order to, to get into that building, which means you going out to lunch is much more complicated than it is here. Um, and uh, I, I went and did this year of service in our federal government because of a man named Todd Park who at the time, until very recently, was the chief technology officer of this country. Uh, he was the second person to hold that position. And he asked me to come help him run a program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. It's designed to bring some of the best and brightest from the private sector into government for these year-long tours of duty where they would, as it says, innovate. And it was based on the program that uh, I created at Code for America, but to do this in the federal level. And uh, I eventually said yes to him, but only after saying, um, I think it is great to bring people into federal government to do this kind of work, but I think we have a bigger problem that we need to solve. And it is that we are spending truly staggering amounts of money, taxpayer dollars. These numbers are obviously a bit outdated. <laughs> Hello, it's 2015. Um, and this was an estimate from a couple of years ago. 
But just in contractors, something in the order of $172 billion a year for IT that runs our, essentially our relationship between governments and citizens. Um, but what we're getting for that are websites that look like this, that are very confusing, that have a lot of legal language on them that often break, that you, have pro you may have encountered. This is just one screenshot from a project I worked on in federal government. Um, and they often don't work. And what people's experience of government mostly looks and feels like is waiting in line because the technology doesn't work. Maybe we can't go online. Maybe the systems that are at the DMV aren't working very well. Um, but we're paying a very large sum of money for results that just simply don't match. What I told Tad when he asked me to come to federal government was that if you go outside the US, this is starting to be a solved problem. Uh, there is a group in the UK called the Government Digital Service. Uh, it is run by a remarkable man named Mike Bracken, who was formerly the head of digital for the Guardian newspapers. And uh, he has brought together some of truly the best and brightest in the digital world in the UK to make government services work. Uh, they started uh, by putting up something called gov.uk. They looked across their equivalent of the federal government and found, as we did, there are thousands and thousands. Um, we actually think in the federal government it's about 30,000 websites um, where the government is publishing information and, and um, hosting transactions that they think that the people need. But it really, if you have, your experience is really uh, not uh, a useful one. They, Hold all of those together and put them under one domain. I know that it looks a little bit like Yahoo in the 90s, but it turns out, based on user need, this is a great way to get people to the information that they need. Um, so they started by basically fixing the publishing aspect of what they do, simplifying the language, throwing out the vast majority of web content, and republishing on a, on a modern platform. And then they moved on to transactions where they're able to actually make these transactions that you need to do with your government very simple and easy to, to do. Um, we don't have carer's allowance here, but think of it as uh, equivalent to a, a benefit that you might get. If, uh, and many of you are too young to be applying for benefits for the federal government other than your student loans if you have them. Um, but you probably, if you have student loans, have been through pages that look much more like what I showed before than these very simple, clear transactions that, that simply work. And what I told him also was that uh, this actually, this far increased experience that the British citizens are having with their government doesn't cost more, it costs much, much less. So it was costing about a sixth to publish that content on gov.uk to have far, far more users of that content than what they were doing before. And that's before they actually got to the transactions. So I pitched Todd on this idea that we need to have an American equivalent, the American GDS. And could we, could we work on that in my year in government? And he was graciously agreed. And so I went uh, to DC and worked in that building for a year on this, uh, for several months, getting this ready. People were pretty excited about it. Uh, and then October 1st came around, October 1st, 2013. You guys probably don't remember it, but that's the day that healthcare.gov launched and failed. So um, my work stopped for a bit. My boss disappeared. He was asked to pull together the team that was going to figure out if the site was savable and, in fact, uh, uh, save it. This is some of that team. They ended up on the cover of Time magazine. That's Todd hiding there in the back because he's very shy and doesn't like the spotlight. 
Um, right in front of him are two ex-Googlers, um, Mikey Dickerson, who really ended up sort of leading the team that fixed the current site, the site that, that the contractors had built, um, kind of with duct tape to sort of get it through the enrollment period. Uh, and then in, next to him, Jeannie Kim, who put together the team that rebuilt the site with a team of about 12 people over three months, something that had taken several thousand people and about $600 million taxpayer dollars to do and didn't work, uh, she rebuilt with a team of 12 in about three months. Um, I got to know this team really well. I feel very privileged to have gotten to know them. Um, there were many, many late nights at the office. And um, in fact, one thing that you should know, if you ever meet these folks, or many, there, there are many other folks who are not pictured here, obviously, that I asked Mikey once, how many hours did you work? And he had, was actually a subcontractor to a subcontractor to the main contractor, paid hourly for his work on <coughs> making healthcare.gov uh, make it through the enrollment period. So he could add those up pretty clearly. And he said, I looked at it and at one point, I had worked 20 hours a day straight for 100 days, for 100 days straight. That's heroism. And I think almost all of the people who worked on that team did that. And if you ever meet them, please thank them for their service to this country, because that's quite a feat. And one of those late nights, uh, I was, we, were, uh, we were talking in the office about why they were doing this incredible work. Um, and Todd was getting the letters that were being sent to the president uh, about, you know, from people who were benefiting from the Affordable Care Act, which is what healthcare.gov was you know, implementing. And there were many, many of these letters, and I remember some of them, and I remember that all of them had a deep impact on me. But one that I remember in particular was from a mom who said uh, that she, her family had a history of diabetes and cancer. But for the past 15 years, she had had to choose between health care for herself and health care for her kids. And that the ACA had meant that for the first time in 15 years, she'd gone to see a doctor. And that's why these guys were working 20 hours a day for 100 days straight. And that's why I asked about health insurance, because it is really hard to understand the really difficult problems that we face as a country if you don't experience those things yourself. And there's very limited opportunities for us to be in that line of fire. You know, many of us come from backgrounds that do, that, you know, where we don't have health insurance, but if you do, you need to have opportunities to be aware of the problems that our country faces. There was another time that we were in the office very late at night when the guys were actually going back to the operations center in Columbia, Maryland at about 2 in the morning. Um, and I said, guys, you got to go to sleep sometimes. Why are you going there in the middle of the night? And they explained to me that, um, in fact, there's pretty high traffic at, on healthcare.gov. This is about November, December. There's pretty high traffic on healthcare.gov in the middle of the night, but not from desktop browsers, from mobile browsers. The people were hitting the site in large numbers on low-end mobile phones, and the pattern was that they would, they would get online, a particular user would get online in the middle of the night, make it about two steps further in the process of enrolling in healthcare, save his or her progress, and go back on the next night. And what you're seeing in that moment is using, looking at that data and seeing real users who have real needs. 
Those are people probably who are working more than one job, who obviously don't have internet access at home, and this was the only way that they could navigate this really difficult and complex site and this complex process, but they were going to spend a couple of hours every single night when they knew the traffic was lower to just get a little bit further with it. I think the lesson to learn here, of course, at first, is that if you want to recruit some of the best technologists in the country, give them something to work on that really matters, and they will succeed. They will not fail at their tasks. These guys were amazing in what they did. But I think the second lesson is sort of grimmer, which is that however you may feel about a policy like the Affordable Care Act, do we really want to live in a world where we can't actually implement the policies that government creates? Whatever policy that might be. We almost lost the Affordable Care Act because we couldn't make a website work. Something that probably many of you in this room could have done quite well. And there are a lot of reasons why that's true. Uh, but that is, a, that is a place, I think, of fundamental anxiety as a culture, and that's why it drives a lot of the work we do. And the third lesson, I think, from healthcare.gov is that um, this was headline news, of course, um, for many, many months, uh, or at least for many, many weeks, primarily because uh, it was the, pre the president's key policy initiative, but also because the middle class was having to use this site. And in fact, if you're poor, you're kind of using something like healthcare.gov every day. Ezra Klein put this very, very well at the time, and Tim O'Reilly uh, wrote about this as well in a, in a post called What's Really at Stake in Interfaces to Government. But he says, he says, you know, most of the time we just don't even know about the pain and trouble of interfacing with government bureaucracies that the poor struggle with every single day. And of course, it's not just the poor. Uh, this is a famously entrepreneurial community, so many of you will either have already or will go on to start businesses. And when you do, you also will be dealing with filing things like business permits and the sort of morass of things. Of course, many times your lawyers will be doing it. Um, but you'll know a little bit about some of that pain of, of dealing with government bureaucracy and the forms that are needed to fill out. And it's really that sort of more day-to-day -day, uh, frustration that drove me to start Code for America. Um, but in starting, it put me on that path to understanding some of really what's at stake in our country and then sort of brought my work at the local level and the federal level together for me. So I thought what I'd do is take a little step back and tell you about, uh, about Code for America and a little bit about how it got started and some of what we've learned over time. Um, this is our first class of Code for America fellows that uh, came together in the beginning of 2011. So uh, these are folks with several years of experience in the industry. Average age of our fellows tends to be about 29 or 30, but uh, recent grads are more than welcome to apply, um, who take a year out of their careers to give a year of service to their country. And we match them with local governments who want to try things in a more startup sort of spirit. And we have a very, very structured program. I'll, I could tell you a little bit more about that in Q&A, but I think I'll tell you more about sort of the work that we've done. One of the first things that happened, we had a, a team working with the city of Boston in 2011. They actually went in to work on a sort of um, data platform for education uh, in the Boston public schools, which at that time in our uh, existence was very hard for us to get access to data. Um, the uh, movement of open data and sort of trusting data to be outside the walls of an institution was a, was a little bit younger then. 
Um, but uh, so they were they were fumbling around with this sort of very grandiose project um, uh, of an API for all uh, Boston education data, when the mayor, lovely mayor, may he rest in peace. He was a fantastic mayor in Boston. Um, came to our fellows and said, "We have a really big problem. We have changed the rules about how uh, kids get assigned to public schools. It's essentially now around trying to have more kids be able to walk to school." Um, so it's essentially a mapping problem, and a couple of other rules in there. Um, but what we've done is published a 28-page printed brochure with type that small and sent it to all the parents who are now in tears because you can read the 28 pages of four-point type and you still have no idea which schools your kids are eligible to attend. Can you help us? <laughs> and so one of the fellows who was working on this API said, I, I can't, let me take this, and, and went off. And uh, about uh, eight weeks later, he published, I don't have the slide of the early version. This is the, what it looks like currently. He published something called discoverbps.org, put it up on, a, um, uh, I think, on Amazon. And it basically, you type in your name, the age of your you know, grade that you're kid in, and if you have any if the kid has any siblings in another public school, you could put your address in, and it returns a map list of where you can go to school. So it takes a very long process down to a couple of minutes. Um, great, fantastic, that's pretty easy to do. But what we learned in that process, we were like, okay, what do we do next? The, the, the folks in city government came to us and they said, you don't understand. If this had gone through a regular procurement process, this would have taken us at least two years and cost at least $2 million. <coughs> and I don't think we actually realized that at, time, at the time because what we were saying, what we were trying to say to the world was, look, these interfaces to government can be simple, beautiful, and easy to use. We can have a relationship with government that's as delightful and positive as we have with other institutions through, uh, that are mediated through digital technology. Um, but the other thing that really got me about that was it wasn't really about the money. It was about the time. Imagine being the mayor and having to go to parents and say, yeah, we'll get you that in two years. <laughs> you know, in the meantime, your kids are trying to enroll in school. So this really set a pattern for us of uh, uh, there's, there's data that needs to be made usable to a certain set of users. We can, we can do that pretty easily. We can put a nice front end on it, and it costs kind of what it should cost in the real world. Um, the team that did, one of the guys who was on the team that did that went on to work on a problem that we just discussed, this idea of business permits. If you go to start, um, uh, this was the use case here really was a small business, not necessarily a tech startup, in Santa Cruz, California, where they were realizing how difficult it was for, for someone to start, say, a dry cleaners. And all, all of the different forms that you need to fill out, they need to be filled out in a different particular order. You don't know how much each form, what fees come with each form. People are sort of throwing up their hands and actually not complying with the law. So they put up sort of a simple, this is an early, early version of something called Open Counter, where they said, you know, we're just going to start by explaining the process to people. And they first just wanted to make it human. This is where we learned about just changing from a very bureaucratic language to a very human language. These are the people you're going to have to go through. We're not changing that. But here they are, and they're real human beings. They're open. By the way, their office hours are 7 a.m. to 12 p.m., so I hope you don't have to go in the afternoon. Um, we described a little bit about the process. It became sort of a, um, a wizard. And there was a point at the process where you then had to, you'd applied for a number of things, and then you also had to go through a zoning clearance. Do you guys know what that is? Zoning? Um, and it was when the part where your users would typically show frustration. Ah, now I've got to do a, a, 
a zoning check as well. I don't, why, am I, why am I being required to do this? And just some basic language that tells you. Zoning basically makes sure a rubber factory that would maybe put out toxic fumes can't open next to a preschool. This is why government exists, and sometimes we need a brief reminder of it as we're going through a difficult bureaucratic process. Um, this actually has evolved now. This is a screenshot from an application that uh, this team has done now turned into a real business called Zoning Check. So um, whereas you would have to go through lots and lots of different documents and information to try to figure out where you could place your business, now you can just click on uh, Palo Alto, I'm going to open an office, um, I don't know where I want to be, just show me where I could, and then it'll give you the, you know, the green spots. I assume that's University Avenue, that little bit of green spot there. There you go. We make, we make something much, much easier to do. And we can do this, we can run this play hundreds and hundreds of times. But that, um, that really is what we think of as this notion of let's make government work for the people. It's not that hard, we just really need to do it. But that's not all, to the, all there is to the story because uh, the history of our country doesn't just talk about government for the people. It's also built into our, our narrative, our historical narrative, but it's also government by the people. And I want to tell you a little story that illustrates the power of that. Um, these were the fellows who were assigned to our Honolulu project. See, we go great places in, uh, in 2012. And in fact, uh, Shiba Najmi at the top there is a, a relatively recent Stanford grad uh, who came to us. Um, and in Honolulu, our city partners there were asking us really to fix their website, which was tens of thousands of pages of content um, backed by no CMS. And that was not something that three folks could do in the space of one year realistically, which is the, 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 um, the time frame of our fellowship. So they kind of kept saying, I'm sorry, that's not something we can do. Let's find another project. But both the residents of Honolulu and the people in City Hall kept saying, please, please, please fix our website. So they said, well, let's start with the problem. This was the website at the time. It's a pretty classic government website. It starts up in the corner with government, agencies and departments, online services, and the big chunk in the middle is dedicated to news releases. So we call this like a very typical, this is what government wants to tell you. It doesn't have a lot of relationship to what you need from government, but it's what we want to tell you. So they said, okay, if we care about what the users actually need, let's look at the search logs. And they went in there and said, what are the top terms? For, turns out the top search term was driver's licenses, which is not an anomaly. Very often, um, American does, Americans do not understand which level of government <laughs> does which function. Um, but in this case, Honolulu actually does handle driver's licenses for, this, uh, for the state of Hawaii. Um, so they said, OK, great. Let's put that in there. If you type driver's license into the search box of Honolulu.gov, you will get a page that looks like this. There's actually a dozen, about a dozen pages that look like this. You will click through one of, the, one of these, and you will get another page that looks like this. And this is something that tells you that expired driver's licenses of a member of any uh, component of the United States Armed Forces who's on active federal service gets an extra 30 days. It's stuff like that. Dozens and dozens of pages that look like this that do not actually tell you how to get a driver's license. Um, and so they decided that what they could do is just first show what's possible. And they borrowed from that gov.uk site I showed you earlier, um, a very basic search interface. And they said, look, let's not port all that content onto a new CMS. That's a fool's errand. 
But um, let's type drivers, let's create our new content. If you type driver's license into this Honolulu Answers interface, you'll get something like this. If you click that second link, you'll get a page that says, how do I get a driver's license? I need to go here. I need to bring these things. Um, I need to uh, take an eye test. I need to pay a fee. And here's how I schedule my test. Boom, done. This is the content that people are looking for. And this is not, as you can see, a technology problem. It's a content problem. But the te technology is a part of it. But they knew at that point that there were still those uh, tens of thousands of pages of content that they weren't going to tackle. And tens of thousands, well, maybe not tens, there are thousands of needs that the residents of Hawaii had um, that were not being met by the top 10 search terms that they created great content for. So I assume everyone here has been to a hackathon. Has anybody here before been to a write-a-thon? Yes. Not fair, Tim. We know that. Um, I believe that the write-a-thon that the, the Coke America Fellows held in Honolulu was one of the first ever. Uh, I now hear about them around the country. But what they did was they took the questions implied by the next 70 search terms, um, 70 most frequent search terms on the site, and they put them up on a wall in a co-working space near City Hall on a Saturday afternoon, and they invited the people that they had met through their research, both people in city government and just concerned citizens, and about 60 people showed up. And they spent the day writing in clear, simple human language the answers to those 60 questions. They would edit each other's work, and they would check all of their work with the folks in City Hall to make sure they weren't saying anything technically inaccurate. And at the end of the day, they had questions to definitely sort of the top of a long tail curve of what people were coming to Honolulu.gov asking. And it was clear and simple that in a way that their other fellow Honolulu residents could understand. And most importantly, they had an amazing time. They actually had a party. And uh, uh, a party with the mayor coming by and celebrating is not what most people think of when they think of government technology. Uh, and one of the real lessons that we learned there, um, uh, which uh, uh, Dr. Sally alluded to in, in, uh, in in my speaking of my TED talk, is that we have come to the understanding that there are so many concrete wa ways now that we need to redefine participation in government. It's not just about having a voice in an issue. There are so many voices. It's about offering your hands to actually fix the problem. And I think we are at the verge of being able to say, there is no excuse for complaining. We can create ways that we, the people, can fix these problems. Um, another lesson that we learned from Honolulu Answers um, was that this stuff can spread. Uh, there are about a dozen cities now that have a version of it, including where I live and where Tim lives in Oakland, California. Um, we created Oakland Answers in the same format. We held a write-a-thon near City Hall one day. And in fact, um, this is the question that I, first question that I answered. I keep chickens in my backyard in Oakland, and I wanted other people to know that they could do that. Um, I am, by the way, not a programmer, so this was a great way for me to contribute in a way for anybody who's not technical to contribute to government IT. Uh, and Tim answered a great question, too. Um, and there are dozens of, of cities that are using it. In fact, there are federal agencies that are using this core technology as a way of just simply publishing uh, clear, simple information to their users. So you start to think about the ways in which it's not, it, this really does start to look more like not an, text, an internet startup, but that this is really working like the internet itself. Solutions can come from anywhere, 
They did not expect to do that work, and they can start to spread with a lot less friction than we, we usually associate with government technology. Um, so that was really our sort of getting that there's this top-down and bottom-up piece to this solution. Government needs to work for the people, but it's only really going to work if it's also by the people. Um, and that was, a, that was sort of the, the conclusion that I'd come to right before I left to go work in federal government. Um, but I also uh, was on this journey of understanding what it's like for folks who are less privileged in our society to work, to work with government. And that story really started with the San Francisco team who worked uh, with Mayor Ed Lee on a problem, again, that most of us probably don't have enough access to, which is uh, the problem of enrolling in food stamps. This is the application process, or part of the application process, for CalFresh, our state's nutrition assistance program. There are over 50 screens, and at the end of it, you can print it. Um, it's, uh, at the end, you'll get a call and still have an interview. Um, and that, so this, this is part of the problem that they identified. But the problem that they were actually looking at is that once you, if you make it through all of those several hundred questions um, and actually get enrolled in the program and start receiving these benefits, you will get an EBT card that looks a lot like a credit card. And typically, you will be on it for about a month and a half, and then you will fall off the rolls. And this is extremely expensive for government because this is not easy on the user, but it's also not easy on the government bureaucrat who is processing these forms. So when you've spent all the energy to get someone enrolled and they fall right off and have to do it all over again, uh, it's a very inefficient process. They say, could you help us with this problem of churn? And they said, great, do you know why there's this problem of churn? And they said, well, we don't exactly know, um, but uh, the, the fellows actually enrolled in the program so that they could experience what uh, food stamp recipients were experiencing. And the first thing they found is that you start to get letters in the mail from the food stamps office that read something like this. And I like torturing people. Forgive me. I'm going to read this to you for a minute. Your food stamp benefits in this quarter did not change as a result of the documents slash information that we received because it would not have resulted in an increase in benefits. Your food stamp benefits in this quarter did not change the result of the documents slash information we received in the new because the new rule says that when you report some changes, the county cannot lower your food stamps until the next quarter. The county has reconfigured your food stamps using information you reported and the food stamp amount did not go. It goes on and on like this. There's pages of these things and you get them really often. Now, somewhere embedded in one of these letters is the notice that you're supposed to send them some additional piece of documentation or they're going to drop you from the rolls. And no one reads the letters. And if you do read the letters, you don't know that that's what they're asking for. And this is why people were falling off the rolls. Did I torture you enough? Do you want me to keep reading? Um, so we got a lot of letters like this. It was super fun. But what happens when you don't read that letter and you don't comply is that you have this lovely EBT card and you go to the checkout counter to get your food and you're the first person. You finally get to the front of the line and your groceries are all bagged up at this point and they slide your card and it goes, eh, eh. And you're not going home with those groceries and the people behind you in line uh, are going, what's wrong with the, you know, the welfare mom in front of me? So you're both humiliated and hungry. And the data show that a significant proportion of food stamp benefits are spent at midnight on Wednesdays, because that's when the, food, uh, the EBT cards are recharged. Who goes shopping at midnight? Well, probably college students, <laughs> other than you. <laughs> People who are hungry go shopping at midnight. 
So these are people, again, this is another time where you can say you're looking at the data and what you're seeing is a person in need who can't get what they need because of bad government interfaces. So this is the moment that that team that I showed before, this uh, set of developers and designers doing a year of service, uh, chose to focus in on. How could we keep the woman or the man at the front of the line from having that, uh -uh, your card is denied moment? And they tried a whole bunch of different things for several months. They tried putting up websites explaining the process. Um, they had translations of the letters. Um, and that didn't really work. They tried a couple of other things. And finally, they landed on the notion that we could just text people. Uh, they now, t and what they, 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 turns out, and all those several hundreds of questions and those 50 screens in the application that you saw earlier, there isn't a question that asks for your cell phone number. Um, so they actually had to do a call-a-thon in order to do a, a, a pilot of this, where they got permission to call a subset of uh, CalFresh users and ask them for their cell phone numbers and ask them permission to text them. And then they piloted a program where if you were about to fall off of the rolls, we would text you. Your CalFresh benefits stop at the end of this month. Questions, please call us. And they found that about 40% of people did call and then didn't fall off the roll. So that's a pretty significant <coughs> intervention. That's what they were able to do, believe it or not, in almost an entire year of work at Code for America with all of the um, barriers that came into it. Uh, and, but it was a very successful program that they're continuing to work on. But in investigating this problem, they found so many other problems that they really needed to work on. There are, because of the process I showed you, there are at least uh, three and a half million people who, in California who are eligible for food uh, for CalFresh but not getting the, pro, uh, the benefits. Um, there's about $20 million a year spent by uh, food stamp recipients in uh, ATM fees, which go directly to the banks that have already charged the program. It's a long story. Um, and when you call the office, you will typically wait on hold for about 45 minutes before you can talk to a caseworker. Um, so these are small things, but what they really got to understand, because they were enrolled in these programs and talking to people, is that these big things really add up. Even just things like the fact that you go to the office and you're asked to fill out a form using a very short pen on a wall that's not even flat. <laughs> this is the kind of, ex this is maybe the analog of, 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 the, of, the, of the digital experience, but this is sort of what we're putting people through all the time. And so they said, let's actually go, and the, these fellows decided to stay on and work with us on this problem. Let's actually go try to, to sort, of, sort of a surround set of features that will actually make this experience better. So remember this, um, this long application? How about this? Is this a little bit better? This is running on an average mobile phone. Uh, it's about seven steps. You can then sign it, and you're done. Now you've enrolled in food stamps. You can, we, they've put these on iPads, and now caseworkers all over the city of San Francisco are taking them to people who they know are eligible and just having them sign up right there, which just reduces so much of the barrier of getting them into the office and getting them through these 50 screens. Um, what's another one? Uh, you don't know how to use your, your, your benefits. You don't know where, who actually takes them. Well, this is, a, again, on a, on a basic smartphone. In about two seconds, it'll say the closest place to you that, that'll accept your food stamps is here. Um, this is a really important one. People don't know how much is on those cards, and it's a sort of long, complicated process to call in and check your balance. Um, just sort of hack together a thing where if you text your 
the code on your EBT card in will return your actual balance on your card really quickly. Um, and this one is really key. It's very simple. If you are on hold for 45 minutes and you're on EBT, you probably don't have an unlimited plan. And you also don't have 45 minutes. Who has 45 minutes for that? But um, this will just text it and then this office will call you back when there's a caseworker who can talk to you. I know I am not wowing any of you engineering students with complicated technology, but I hope I'm describing something that really makes a difference in the life of somebody who, who, who needs a little bit of a break. Um, by the way, we just did this work. We didn't actually have to get permission from the city of San Francisco. We just sort of do these projects and sort of throw them over the wall. When we threw this one over the wall, um, Leo O'Farrell, who runs the uh, SNAP program for San Francisco, said, this is great, but one thing, I have to be the voice that the caseworker hears when, when Connect makes this Connect, because it, they need to, they want to hear, this is your boss, Leo O'Farrell, please hold the line. I have a client waiting to speak with you. Otherwise, the caseworkers would hang up. Um, so the enthusiasm in government, you know, people really misunderstand that, but there's a huge enthusiasm for these, these creative hacks to make things work better. Um, the important thing, though, is that we're getting beyond those creative hacks. This work has enabled us, um, we've been now been invited by the state of California to actually come work on the core eligibility system that runs all of these programs. Um, which, by the way, is a $500 million contract with a vendor. And the, uh, the, the program is written in COBOL. And we have another 10 years, I think, or somewhere in a 10-year contract to maintain a very large uh, COBOL application. But we're going to help them. Um, so this is sort of a way of, of, of surrounding these folks with just a bunch of little hacks just to make their day a little bit easier. But what really it is, is it's a set of things driven by understanding the user need. And this is the thing that art overarches all of our experience at Code for America and also ties us back to those, that government digital service in the UK that I talked about earlier that's been so successful. Why have they been so good at breaking the big IT cartel about um, so successful in delivering government digital services that really work for the British citizens, not because they had some magic sauce, not because they knew the right technology stack, not because um, they had authority, though they did have that, but because they had a set of designs principles that were the right principles, and they got agreement around them. All of them are really valuable, and these are valuable, I think, not just for um, Government design, they're, I think they're valuable for any kind of service design that any of you in the room may be doing or will do in the future. But I want to call it the first one in particular because it says start with needs and then there's a little asterisk and it says user needs, not government needs. That asterisk says it all. Um, I've spent enough time in government to tell you that your day is dominated by government needs and those are things like compliance and regulations that I, I understand why they've come about, they serve an important purpose, and I don't mean to denigrate them in any way, but it means that 99% of your time is spent meeting those needs instead of, instead of meeting the need of an actual user. They have made sure that that governs everything that they do. Um, that is how it, we try to make sure that that governs how our fellows and other staff work when we are doing government design. And that's how you come up with, let's actually make this work for people on food stamps because you actually care that that person not have to go home with no food uh, uh, to, to feed their family. Um, so I have, this is our mission statement for the organization. We believe that government can work for the people, by the people. 
in the 21st century, but only if we make it so. And we never mean we code for America. We mean we the people. We mean you. <laughs> we mean it is our job. No one else is going to fix government for us. But I also think that sometimes the, the people can be a little bit grandiose because what we're really saying is government can work for actual real people who are our neighbors and our friends and by actual real people who are us and our neighbors and our friends. Uh, that, that's really what we're saying. And I don't think we would do this work if we weren't driven by that understanding. Um, I want to return to the, uh, oh, I did have that slide in. Great. <laughs> um, uh, so the, so this, this connection to those real people, which I saw so clearly with those folks trying to help people on food stamps, and so, so clearly with the amazing team that saved healthcare.gov, um, really, drives, uh, really drives this story of government technology to a happier ending. <laughs> and so um, while, of course, um, it was an absolute disaster for a long time, the team really did pull it out. I love, uh, loved this headline, healthcare.gov is slightly less terrible today, adds plan preview feature that occasionally works. Um, uh, and of course, in the end of the day, um, we enrolled more people in healthcare than we even thought was possible before the site had broken. But the real end of the story is, I went, to I went into federal government to try to create what I called then the American Digital Service, and we did succeed in that. We got Mikey uh, Dickerson to stay, to actually lead this effort, and we do now have an equivalent to that government digital service in the UK. It's called the USDS and the best technologists in the country are leading it. Um, we have also published what we call the US Digital Services Playbook, which uh, has, again, not just a playbook for government digital services, a playbook for anybody who wants to create services that work. And it's, again, start, starts with understanding what people need and address the whole experience. Um, number four is one that I worked on a lot, particularly during the time that I was there. The ability to build services <coughs> using agile and iterative processes. Um, the Federal Acquisition Regulation is a 2,800-page document that determines how we build and buy technology. It's not very agile, <laughs> and it, doesn't allow, it, it has not particularly allowed for iteration. But we actually worked with the Office of Federal Procurement Policy um, in the time that I was there to publish the Tech FAR Handbook, which reinterprets the rules of the Federal Acquisition Regulation. There's not only really reinterpretations, and an interpretation to actually say that we want to use our contractors to support an iterative and customer-driven software development process. And the reason I bring this up is because I need you all to be perfectly clear that if you want to do the kind of work that you would do at a Google or a startup or wherever you might go to practice your uh, engineering or design skills, you can actually do that work in the federal government now. There are no more excuses, and you can, you can certainly do them at the local level, too. It's not always easy, but we have done the hard work. Not that we're done with it, but we've done it in some important early hard work to make sure that you can practice those skills in the service of the country. Um, it is so important to me that you understand that, and that you understand this as, a, as hopefully a part of your career as it evolves over time. Um, because government has not thought about the digital as a core part of what it does for far too long, and we're paying the cost of it. When healthcare.gov shipped and failed on October 1st, it was probably a couple days afterwards when I was sort of getting my head around what that meant, 
I thought back to a blog post that my colleague Tom Steinberg in the UK had published, and this is back in uh, February 2012. He had written a post memorializing um, a colleague of his who had uh, died five years earlier, who was a, a genius and a polymath and could have done anything in the world with his skills, but had chosen to use his talents on essentially civic technology. My society is kind of like the Code for America of, of the UK. Um, and he wanted people to understand what that meant so that his passing, uh, you know, that, that his life still had meaning to the community around him. And when Tom was writing about it, he said what, what Chris fundamentally had right was the understanding that you can no longer run a country properly if the elites don't understand technology in the way that they grasp economics or ideology or propaganda. And his analysis and predictions about what would happen if the elites couldn't learn were savage and depressingly accurate. He wrote that in 2012 before healthcare.gov failed and before we all realized that if we passed immigration reform, it too would probably fail on implementation because of our systems. Because we have thought for so long that the people who should go into government are lawyers and economists, essentially. We must have a native digital capability in order to govern. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, I do think it's, we all have a duty to explain this to others. It's not just technology, right? The good, what good governance and the good society look like is now inextricably linked to an understanding of the digital. And I think that is a burden that your generation bears to explain that and to bring that into this one institution that is designed to serve not some of us, but all of us. Uh, let's see. So another way of saying this is not just that government can work for the people, but that government can work, but only if we make it so. So uh, with that, I would encourage you to, of course, get involved uh, with Code for America in any way that you would like. And uh, if you have questions about working at any level of government, I would be delighted to answer them. Thank you very much. Any questions? Yes. You mentioned some great initiatives at the local level. Mm -hmm. What are some good things you do to scale them up to the national level? That's a great question. Yes. Uh, the question was, we've done some interesting initiatives at the local level, and how are we scaling them up to the national level? Um, well, one example of that would be, and it's scaling up really to the state level at this point, is our work with the California Department of Social Services, where they've noticed our... Um, user-centered and iterative approach and said this is obviously what's needed. You know, you could go state, uh, city by city, county by county and try to do this for users or you can come to us and we'll hit all, whatever is it, 38 California counties. Um, so we're sort of going up the stack a little bit there. Um, and it, it, this, this movement is still pretty early. I think one of the early indications that these things scale is simply that about a year and a half after we created Code for America, a new form of public service for technologists, the federal government did the same, right? So um, some of it is just sort of passing the, the baton, uh, baton back and forth. Um, the, the real thing that actually unites them is data. Um, data flows um, up from the local level to the state, to the federal government, and back down. Um, the more that we can create AB APIs and, and, and uh, um, 
find ways to break the silos in that data and have, you know, be able to build our own interfaces to these services and, and to the data, um, the, the more we will see national scale things. And that work is relatively nascent, um, I guess, in, in the scheme of things, but coming along quite well. Yes? If I wanted to bid on these contracts, like to bid to build healthcare.gov, mm -hmm. what would prevent me or my company from doing that? Um, <laughs> how long do we have? Um, uh, so technically nothing. Um, in uh, but I'm sorry. What would prevent you personally or a company that you might found from uh, bidding on something like healthcare.gov or another government contract? Um, the answer is uh, you would need to have a pretty robust muscle in your company for government procurement and compliance. Um, if you had that, that's great. In many cases, though, you also already need to have been in business for several years. That um, This is some of the rules that we're trying to change. Um, you would need to have a history of government contracts, which makes no sense, right? Like, um, I mean, there, it kind of sometimes gets down to the, the nitty gritty where it's like, it, it's, you know, th there's so much regulation. Um, one of our colleagues complains, who, who does work for the federal government, that he, every year he has to certify that his bathrooms are labeled properly. Like, I don't know why we care, but apparently we do. Um, no, you can do it, and I think that the barriers are coming down because there is a clear understanding at the federal level and at the local level that those barriers are getting us the results that are unacceptable to the American public and to the politicians. Um, but uh, you know, there's a whole host of them that, that generally fall into the buckets of compliance and procurement. Um, uh, I had nothing to say about that that is slipping my mind now. Um, but there, I guess what I would say is, despite those things, we have a huge uh, explosion of what we call civic startups right now. Companies that are doing it anyway, that are figuring out the procurement stuff, that are finding the innovators in government who will guide them through the process. Um, we've had uh, 30 companies go through the Code for America Accelerator or Incubator and start tackling the government market and, and just having, frankly, great success. So don't let my, my negativity scare you off. It's still very worthwhile. And it's partly worthwhile because the size of that market. Government contracts are very large. You can bid for half or less of what the competitors are bidding and still have quite a lovely profit margin on this work. There's also a ton of business models for civic startups that don't rely on government contracts. Companies like C Click Fix that works with local government, they do get some of their um, revenue from, uh, from government, but they have a very robust consumer model too where they're just interfacing with the citizen. Some is there advertising revenue there? Yeah, yeah they have advertising revenue-based models. We're kind of going, going around it. Huge wide range of different business models for civic startups, of which um, government contracts is just one. That's right. There is actually now, um, for the first time ever, a venture capital fund devoted exclusively to uh, government technology, run by a fantastic guy who's been a mentor to us for several years named Ron Buganim. It's a $25 million fund. Called the GovTech Fund. Called the GovTech Fund. Thank you. I think you're next over there. Why did, why did you decide to do a nonprofit as a model, and what challenges did that have for you uh, for funding? We decided to do a nonprofit because I was asking at the time for
for some of the most talented people in the country to work for $35,000 a year. And I felt like um, we should probably make sure that, that, you know, that they felt like um, their efforts were going to something that was, that was at its foundation charitable uh, and, and mission-driven. Um, and uh, I haven't regretted that decision, honestly. Um, grant funding was a great way to get this thing started. Um, we certainly have a significant bit of our um, revenue for Code for America does come from governments now, so it's, it's not exclusively funded by philanthropy, um, and I think that's probably part of our future. But I like us being a nonprofit, actually, quite a bit. Thank you. I think we had one right up here. I was going to ask the exact Oh, you asked the same, same thing. Okay, great. In the back. So the organization is called Code for America, yet um, lots of other countries have exactly the same problems. Yes. And it seems like it's scalable, it's like very scalable from an international perspective. What is um, mm -hmm. your organization kind of doing, or what are your thoughts on scaling this out to a, a more global kind of initiative? Yeah, so we've been contacted by some double-digit percentage of countries on the planet about this. Um, they do pretty much all have the same problems in different degrees. Um, you know, we're a couple of years old, and um, opening up offices around the country seemed like a bit of a leap. Uh, we've taken an approach, uh, sort of a, a page from Teach for America, which we obviously reference in our name, who um, decided also not to expand globally, but to create a, a coordination effort across um, across local efforts to do the same thing. So we actually have a program called Code for All um, that helps uh, connect the efforts of uh, Code for Mexico, uh, Code for the Caribbean, Code for Germany. I mean, th those are the three we're working most closely with, but I think there's uh, 50 or 60 groups in, in that network that are all helping each other. And by the way, we learn as much from their efforts as they do from us. So it, and it truly is about... Um, uh, you know, just ex expanding the experimentation surface. Yes. Um, what would you think about taking this type of talk to some of the people that are actually using the services, like in CalWORKs, for example, mm -hmm. some of the women or men that are involved in that program, mm -hmm. and so since it's coding for the people by mm -hmm. the people, the people that are actually using it can learn to increase their income or do something by having a similar talk mm -hmm. there at the like welfare offices or some of those employment places where they can, you know, pursue so coding you're talking and about writing or the writing it, yes. bonds because they're actually yeah. using the services. I think I understand your question. So people who are using the services might actually learn to code or design and be part of the solution. Um, absolutely. Uh, and I think our new work in economic development uh, has a, a, a very big component of this where we're realizing that if you're going to um, increase the economic vitality of any city in this country, a lot of what you're going to need to do is to help a wider swath of your community have digital skills. Um, that's not particularly what we do. So there's organizations like Code.org and many other organizations like Hack the Hood that are um, helping folks actually learn to code. What we are doing generally is helping on the bureaucratic side where, for instance, you may have... Um, a workforce development program that is simply inefficient and, and badly implemented in terms of its interface, and we can help. We can help fix that. But it is absolutely part of the program. I'm going to just take another answer, if the, another question, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, just based on the work that we've seen, it sounds like a lot of these projects kind of solve problems on a case-by-case -case basis, mm -hmm. and yet a lot of the problems. It seems like the fundamental problem that 
some of these other problems stem from is a lack of understanding of technology at the government level. That's true. Um, so I'd just be curious, given your experience in government and these projects mm -hmm. as well, how do you think we, as kind of the next generation, go about that underlying problem? Which is a lack of understanding in government. So uh, the fundamental problem is a lack of understanding of technology in government. Could not agree more. How do we go about changing that? Um, wide variety of different answers to that. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I would love to see is that by five years from now, everybody with great digital skills in our country, not just in the Stanford community, the startup community, feels that there is an expectation that they will do service to in, in government for some period of time. I'm not <coughs> saying that everybody needs to go have a full career in government, though I think many have decided to do that and not regretted it, have felt enormous satisfaction from their work. But I think a critical component of it is um, especially if your aspiration is to go build a startup and you know, have commercial success, uh, after you have an exit, there's a year or two where you should go work in government. Uh, great, great models for this right now. Um, Yasha Franklin Hodge, who was one of the co-founders of Blue State Digital, um, a, uh, which you know, helped get Barack Obama elected, is now the CIO of Boston. I can I think in this time I won't give my long litany of other examples, but there's also just ways to get involved with this movement, being a fellow, um, mentoring startups, uh, you know, doing a civic startup yourself. I'm sure you would all agree this has been incredibly inspiring. Please join me in thanking our wonderful guests. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.